As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> we already went. Hey, oh, friends, yeah. welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Ben Sternkey. Yes. Uh, we're recording this uh, earlier than we normally do, and I'm noticing my voice is a little lower uh, than it normally is. I think this is, yeah. uh, I don't normally talk uh, at this hour. It's not ungodly early, but I, I, I find that the way I arrange my day, I don't actually normally talk until about mid-morning. Yeah, as I it mean, should I say be. a few things to my wife, hello, goodbye, and then... <laughs> She goes to work. Uh, you know, then I'm uh, doing quiet things until mid-morning. But anyway, not yeah. today. We can make this a quiet thing. We can just speak in hush tones. Yeah, my voice that, is deep enough for that it. Would be better? I hope well, it sounds you know who doesn't, to you. Who doesn't speak in hush tones mm. is the... Greg uh, Boyd. Greg Boyd. <laughs> that guy speaks a mile a minute. And uh-huh. uh, I've never seen somebody in his 60s as excitable and with like youthful vigor as Greg Boyd. Yes. Just True. an amazing spirit. And you know, he sleeps like three hours a night. Yeah, there's some, something, uh, something clearly wrong with that man. <laughs> <laughs> in all the right ways. In, in good, good ways, I think. Yeah, if you're here for a messed up dude, we got uh, one yeah, for you today. For you. Yeah, Greg no. actually and his wife uh, just got over the COVID. Right. Speaking of being it, messed up. They had it bad. Uh, Greg, Greg was back and forth the hospital this is all public he was like speaking oxygen, about this on social media at yeah home and monitor his oxygen level yeah it's crazy i think though they've got a clean bill of health and mm-hmm. uh thankful because greg is a uh I, I consider him a friend but he's a saint man this guy's got a golden heart love this guy and yeah. the humility that uh, somebody of his sort of with his massive brain 
just the yeah, humility. He's also he, really smart. He also speaks with, and the stuff he talks about and owns that he doesn't understand or didn't understand or is learning about. I just, yeah. I want to be like Greg Boyd. I want you to be like Greg Boyd when you grow up, Ben. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think, uh, I think there are worse goals. Although I think, my, I think I'm going to need more sleep uh, than him. But, Ugh, uh, but we'll yeah. see. Yeah. I mean, I, I do currently, but. Um, yeah, Anywho. you know, uh, one of the other things about Greg Boyd is sometimes I'll listen to podcasts on like a little faster speed to try to get through them, you know, because yeah, I got stuff to 1. do. 1.5. You know, yeah. yeah, 1.5. Well, I don't know if I ever go that fast. <clears throat> I feel like that oh. is just like too much. I'm like, oh. okay. You know, the, and there's some podcast. I listen to a poetry podcast. I slow that one down. I'm like, I don't want to listen to, like, what's the point? <laughs> I'm going to listen to poetry at double speed. I'm going to get this poetry in me quick. Um, but anyway, um, so sometimes I'll listen to podcasts like this one on a little faster speed than normal. But anytime I've listened to a podcast with Greg Boyd on it, I've had to just slow it down to, to one speed, you know, one, <laughs> one X speed. So I've been like, what, is, what did he say? What? So anyway, he talks really fast. And fair warning, friends, if you normally listen to this podcast uh, sped up, you want to slow it down. Yeah. Well, he talks about his new book, Inspired and Perfection, which is uh, maybe the opposite of the, of the way that in the 70s and 80s, uh, the books about how the Bible was perfect and errant, no errors. That's how we know it's divinely inspired and um, there have been thousands and thousands maybe millions of Christians who um, testimonies are um, a plenty of how people have walked away from the faith because they they read the scriptures and they see these contradictions or they see these tensions and they don't find old answers compelling well Greg Boyd has written the book for you his his thesis is that the imperfections in scripture actually reveal God's divinity, and uh, it's it's a brilliant twist on an old problem or an old yeah, question yeah, that Christians yeah. have. And then, um, honestly, you know, just listening to Greg chat about anything is awesome. So, yeah, the excited. Conversation to bring this to you. usually ranges uh, from heavy metal drumming to yeah. you know all kinds of different things. So, yeah. quantum yeah. physics, quantum physics, etc. Yeah. So I think that's it, friends. Um, Get out of the enjoy, way. Yeah, enjoy the interview, and uh, we'll see you next time. Peace. Yeah. Greg Boyd, welcome back to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Greg is the Woodland Hills uh, senior pastor, and he also runs an organization called Renew. He's written uh, dozens of books for Christians and uh, other spiritually interested people. Greg, is there anything I'm missing about your CV that we should mention today? Uh, I'm a father of three and grandfather of six. That's probably the most important things. And I like to play drums. But other than that, we'll stick with Wilden Hills and Renew. And remember, Renew is with a K, R-E-K-N-E-W. Yes. Re as in, uh, again, and knowledge as in new. Yes. Rethink it. Everything you thought you knew. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons why we have you here, because you wrote this book, and it's causing me to rethink what I thought I knew about the inspiration of Scripture. So uh, you're good at this. The book is called Inspired in Perfection. How the Bible's Problems Enhances Divine Authority. Uh, maybe uh, maybe set this up for us, Greg. I When I became a Christian, somebody handed me Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Remember oh, that yeah. book? Oh, I uh, do. <laughs> okay. And uh, I, at least half of that book is 
is either implicitly or explicitly devoted to defending the perfection of God's word, right? And how it's just, and I think the word is an errant. Um, and yeah. I know that you, I've heard you tell a little bit of your story. That That's how you became a Christian, how you uh, thought about the Bible, thought about Scripture's authority. Uh, when did that, how did that stop working for you? Or when did you begin to question that? Well, I, I be, began to question that uh, a year after I, be, I became a Christian and my senior in high school, just before my senior in high school, and I had about a year of, it's this Pentecostal church that put a high premium on experiencing God and emotional experiences, whatever. And I had some really good encounters with God there. I really did. And that got me through. That was, that was proof enough that this was true. Um, but then I went to the University of Minnesota, and uh, it took about one semester, not even a full semester, to completely destroy my faith. Uh, mm. I, I took a class on evolutionary biology mm. and uh, I was going to, cause I had to fulfill a biology requirement and uh, I had read three whole books on creationism and evolution, three whole books, which at the time I thought made me an expert. Um, <laughs> and so I went in this class and I, I actually was arrogant and stupid enough to think that I was going to uh, refute the professor and save the class from these evil evolutionists and humanists who are trying to destroy our faith. And I, I was a total butthead for the first, I guess, couple of weeks because I, I had my I had these three by five cards, you know, and I had all my arguments written out. Oh, Whenever the you professor were that guy. Say, I was that guy. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> I, 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 I meant well. I meant well. My heart was in the right place. But I, I just uh, – and, and, uh, and so I would, you know, he'd make a point and I'd bring up, well, what about the second law of thermodynamics, you know, or whatever. Mm. And, and this guy – um, this was the hardest thing because he was nice. He was a professor. Mm. Uh, he would respond really nice to me, and but he would just carve me up. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 he, I was not the first fundy he's ever confronted. Yeah. And uh, and after a little while, the class started objecting, saying, "Will you, you know, tell him to stop asking so many questions?" And uh, but he would defend me. He go, "You know, it's good to question fundamental oh, assumptions." He's, you know, I know I hated it. I wanted to hate him, but I, you know, because I had the stereotype of these evil evolutionists, you know, yeah, Antichrist. Right. This guy was super nice. So that was the first chink in the armor because I was taught that if Adam and Eve are not literal and if, if the earth wasn't created in six literal days, then the whole Bible might as well be a book of lies. Right. Well, yes. I'm going in that direction. Well, then the, the other class I took was a class in the Bible as literature. And, um, uh, I thought that was going to be an easy class because I'd read the Bible already, you know. Uh, but uh, I, I had no idea that there's so many critical theories about it and whatever. And uh, between that class and evolution, I, I, I lost my faith uh, for about a year, uh, nine months. And then the next three months, working my way back. In fact, in some ways, I'm still working my way back. But hmm. um, when I finally started coming back to Christ, I came back l largely through C.S. Lewis um, he presented, he gave me reasons to believe in Jesus that didn't require me to believe in an inerrant Bible. He, it's a straight mm. history. And I got into the historical Jesus. And, and so my faith was grounded in Jesus, um, even though I wasn't sure what to do with the Bible. Hmm. And, and for the next 67 years, I, I have, you know, I tried to, in many different ways, try to retain an idea of inerrancy, try to get back to that. Uh, and then I went with limited inerrancy and there's all these kind of different conceptual inerrancy, you know, and all those kind of qualifications. Um, and, and, and I'm still willing to talk about the Bible's infallibility. Uh, I, I think it will sure. not fail you if you read it in the right way with the right purpose. So, I'm, but I, I think I finally gave up on the concept of inerrancy. I still used it around evangelicals cause that's the term you use to say, yeah, I really believe in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. But, but, uh, 
I, I, I never wrestled with it. Uh, um, I, I, I really let go of that whole idea, I think, in my uh, doctoral program yeah. at Princeton. And yeah. um, so th- th- this book was written largely because, on the one hand, I needed to get finally, I wanted to get on paper. What do I really think about this? You know, I've had this kind of murky mm-hmm. view of inspiration, but sometimes you got to like, okay, dedicate a space of time in your life to say, I'm going to hammer this out. But probably an even greater driving force was that as a pastor, um, I've, I've known several of our youth who went away to college and lost their faith. Yeah. Um, and, and for that reason, I, I started doing teachings there. And the reason they lost their faith was because they were set up for a fall. They were set up to believe this Bible was inerrant. They went to the university like I did and or met an intelligent Christian or read a book or whatever. But it doesn't take much researching to find out that this is not an inerrant book. It's got a mm. lot of errors in it. Um, and it's just tragic that they lose their faith over that. And there are, you know, over the process of you know, 40 years of ministry, I've encountered so many people who will tell me, um, I just had a conversation, uh, not a couple of years ago, I guess, but a guy on a plane, he sees I'm reading a theology book, so he says, oh, are you a Christian? And I, I, I say, well, I don't know about that term, uh, but because it's, it's a loaded term. Evangelicals yeah. even worse. And so I never say yes yeah. when people ask me that, because I don't know if they mean what I mean. And usually what yeah. they mean is very different than what I would mean. So why use that term? But I, I said, yeah, but I try to follow Jesus. And he told me, he told me about how he used to be a passionate Christian, was a, a leader in his youth group and all that stuff. Uh, but then he, he, uh, got, he became convinced uh, that the conquest narrative is not rooted in history. Uh, he read mm-hmm. some books that said, no, that's largely a political, ideological, retroactive thing that's imposed hundreds of years after the alleged event. And he says, I, 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 that just blew away his faith. And, and my response to him was, like, I, I, I think it's so tragic that you would you felt you needed to surrender a vibrant relationship with Jesus because one story in the Bible isn't anchored you know solidly in history. Even if I would just grant that, um, I, I think those two should be two totally different things. Uh, and yeah. so that's kind of why I wrote the book. Yeah. So it's looking at the Bible in this certain way as a as a sort of inerrant, sort of perfect uh, book of things that are true. Um, that's a terribly fragile foundation for your faith. But the the trouble is that, yeah, the trouble is that that a lot of people think it's the only foundation for our faith. I know, I know. Yeah, go ahead. Well, well, it's confused, I think. When you say foundation for our faith, it can mean either foundation for what we believe as a Mm -hmm. community, and that's, Mm -hmm. I think, wonderful. But if you mean the epistemic foundation for your faith, why you believe what you believe, well, you're on very, very thin ice. And yes, yes. Uh, in our world, you know, once upon a time, you could live most of your life and never have to seriously engage with people who disagreed with you. Uh, Christians right. were kind of quarantined, you know, and yeah, it's yeah. easy to hold any belief as long as it's, you know, no one's around to challenge it. But we're in right. an intensely and increasingly pluralistic environment where your faith is going to be challenged if you're yeah. at all a thinking person. And, and, and that concept of inerrancy just does not, it just does not stand up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Greg, I, I actually I'm glad you brought up the epistemology because I I see this book at least for me as like the sequel to Benefit of the Doubt. Like Benefit mm-hmm. of the Doubt, breaking the idol of certainty. You kind of deal with our relationship to our certainty that we often anchor in the Bible, and then yeah. this book is like unpacking. Well, well, then what is the Bible? How do we relate to it? And you said something interesting. Um, you said something about having a relationship with Jesus that came th- like from the Bible. 
versus having a relationship to this person that you discovered in history. Could you unpack that a bit more? Because I think most of us who grew up in youth groups, going to Awana and whatnot, we related to God solely through the Bible. That's what we were taught is the faithful way to do it. But it sounds like in your story, you uh, explored some mm. other ways of meeting well, Jesus. It, it, yeah, it, it's a... It, it's kind of like the difference between treating the Bible as a picture on the wall or treating it as a window on a wall. Uh, it, it's not meant to be looked at as an end in and of itself as though it was, you know, a, a work of art. Look at this. Um, it's meant to be looked through. It, it, Jesus himself says this, you know, Moses wrote about me. This is all about me. And, mm. uh, and, and, and he says to the Pharisees in John five, you know, that uh, you study, you study the scripture and that's all well and good. And yet you don't, you know, believe in me when I'm the life of Scripture. He, so Scripture is there to give us life, and the, he, Jesus, the life is Jesus Christ. If it fails to do that, then it, 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 it's just, a, it's just a, a piece of literature. Uh, but God has, wants to use that book uh, to work with the community, to keep people, uh, to bring people into relationship with him, to grow in that relationship, to sustain it, and all of that. Um, and so, so the relationship, so the relationship, I, I, I wouldn't know Jesus apart from the Bible, but, uh, knowing the Bible doesn't give you a relationship with Jesus. It, mm-hmm. It's gotta go beyond that. And then the relationship doesn't depend on the perfection of the Bible. Uh, this is an idea that I think it's really a, a, a reflection of idolatry. And I don't want to offend people in saying this. And I don't, <laughs> people that don't intend to be idolatry, but see, this is what you, we humans have always done this, right? Uh, we have a whole history of religions to look at to understand what the, what, what do the gods look like when humans make project onto the screen what, what God's like. And they don't know what God's like. How do we guess? Well, God's always just a bigger version of ourselves. You know, you, you look at the Greek pantheon. They're, they're, they're immature adults uh, who happen to be gods. And what makes them gods is they've got more power, you know, than, than yeah. we do. And we want to broker with them to get some of that power. That's what religion's all about. Uh, and, and so we, we, we think that, that when it comes to the gods or God, uh, we associate them with power, with opulence, with all the things we desire, right? And, and so we, we assume that, you know, God, if God's going to come down, he should come down with a red carpet treatment, should ride in a Cadillac, live in a castle, whatever. Uh, but he comes instead. He doesn't come as this, you know, the great, powerful, Roman, ass-kicking Messiah that everyone wanted him to be. He comes mm-hmm. as this lowly, you know, born to an unwed peasant teenager uh yeah. and and raised in poverty and has to become an illegal immigrant as he's you know running away from herod and 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 then he dies on the cross and becomes our sin and, and becomes our curse you know to to conquer all that uh he busts all of our categories of what the deity is supposed to be like and uh um and, and, and so when it comes to the Bible, we think, well, if it's divinely breathed, it must be perfect. It must be. It should yeah. be perfect literature. It should be perfect Greek. It should be perfect everything. But it's not. It, it, <laughs> it, it, it is, it, it's got remarkable literature in it. It's got some pretty low-grade literature in it. It's got insightful stuff, but it's got some very, very crude stuff. It's got, you know, barbaric stuff. Uh, and even some mm-hmm. of the portraits of God are just pretty much taken right out of the ancient Near East. And so we yeah. have to deal with the Bible that we actually have. But if, yeah. if, if the cross is our centerpiece for what God is like, and this was really the thing that changed everything for me. When I really got how central in the New Testament itself, everything points towards the revelation of God on the cross confirmed by the resurrection. And if you look at the cross, far from being the perfect, shiny, beautiful, opulent display that you would expect the deity to do in revealing mm. God's self, comes as he's a crucified criminal. 
And, and Paul, the Apostle Paul says that the cross is the power and the wisdom of God. To the world, it's foolish and weakness. But to us, it's the power and wisdom of God. So here, this not only is, does he appear imperfect, he embodies all that is wrong and broken with the creation. He's, he's bearing mm-hmm. our sin there. That's why the cross is on the surface hideously ugly, because it reflects the ugliness of our sin. But when we, with the eyes of faith, can look through that ugliness, we behold the beauty of God, because we see mm-hmm. God stepping into that ugliness. The beauty of mm-hmm. God is coming down to, our, to humanity and taking on our ugliness, entering into our hell, in order to redeem mm-hmm. us so that we can be share in his bliss. And and Greg, uh, um, that, that's Greg. So, that's that's totally that totally challenges the paradigm that that I got in seminary, which is God is this flawless, perfect, pristine being, and that and and so it was almost like my doctrine of scripture and my doctrine of God were yeah, concomitant with each other. Absolutely, and that's a, that is a standard in at least Western evangelicalism, where the logic is if God is perfect and the Bible is God-breathed, then the Bible must be perfect. A perfect yes. God must breathe a, 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 a perfect book. Well, let's look at the cross and ask that question. Does this look like, is a perfect God, God's beautiful, but is his revelation all beautiful? No, it's hideously ugly. Uh, God's perfect, but is his revelation perfect? Well, no, it, it's, he embodies all that's wrong and missing. And, and so oh. I, the cross should set us up to expect the Bible to, to reflect the the same God who inspired the revelation of himself on the cross is the same yeah. God that inspired the Bible. Why well, think yeah. the Bible needs to be totally perfect when the cross points in the opposite mm-hmm. direction? So, so, the, mm-hmm. so the cross reveals everything that's beautiful about God and everything that's wrong with the world. And what, yeah, it, it does. And when, that's one way to say it, right? And so what you're saying is we should, see script, we should expect Scripture then to be a similar revelation of God. God always takes the, foolish things of, the foolishness of this world. Uh, to mm-hmm. confound the wise, uh, we should expect God's written revelation to reflect the same kind of foolishness and weakness that the cross expresses. Uh, but mm-hmm. for us, the the weakness is not a weakness; it's it's the means of revelation. It, it's uh, the mm-hmm. the uh, it, it, it's a necessary stepping stone to the, the, the revelation <laughs> of God. So, yeah. The, mm-hmm. Look at it, it's a little bit like in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. If you remember that thing where it, the Indiana Jones has to go and choose which chalice did the King of Kings drink <laughs> right. from, and the Nazi yeah. guy. And, and this is probably dating myself here. I hope your audience can follow it. But it's a great Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. But uh, the, mm-hmm. the Nazi guy he gets to choose first, and he chooses the opulent uh, chalice because mm-hmm. it looks that looks like what, what what a king would choose. And of course, he mm-hmm. incinerates because it's a, he chose poorly. <laughs> <laughs> he chose mm-hmm. poorly, but the, the Indiana Jones finally gets it right. No, this is a lowly carpenter, so he chooses the most humble of the uh, chalices in that in that 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 cave there, and that was the right choice. God always mm-hmm. works through the humble, and that's what reveals yeah. His greatness. He reveals His yeah. beauty by taking on our ugliness, and His greatness by taking on our weakness. Um, yeah. his, his, he reveals His holiness by taking on our sin. It, mm. And it's the condescension, it's his willingness, his humility to come down to our level and take it all on himself that reveals how great he is. So the greatness yeah. of God is magnified when he uses common human people, full of faults, yeah. full of uh, all that. He doesn't lobotomize mm. them to give them perfect thinking before he uses them. Uh, he re- uses them as they are. And, yeah. and that's what displaces greatness. Yeah, so it sounds like your doctrine of Scripture then is wrapped up in the incarnation and wrapped up in the crucifixion. So those two things, 
and you're and you're sort of drawing on metaphors from both of those. Yeah, and for me, those are are uh, these two facets of the same thing. Uh, the the point of the, the the cross, I think, fulfills the incarnation, and the resurrection then right. just confirms it all. It's it's one yeah. thing. Uh, but yeah, yeah. The, you're right. That, that's I think that should be our paradigm. Rather than saying, yeah. what do we just on our own reasoning? What makes logical sense to us? Well, a perfect God must reveal a perfect book, and therefore we develop a doctrine on that. Well, that fits our common sense. But mm-hmm. when did the God revealed in Jesus ever fit our common sense? Yeah. Uh, he's always blowing it apart. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. So it, stri- it strikes me that if the cross was, I mean, we can look back on it on hindsight and sort of pretty it up, you know, and make it into like, oh, we can see how God was revealing himself. But I think it's important to remember, like, that was extremely offensive oh, totally. and difficult for both Jews and Gentiles. You know, we um, like you, you quoted from the first chapter of uh, first Corinthians, right? right where right. Paul talks about this, like right. this, this is this scandal that God would come to us as a uh, crucified criminal. Um, and so it sounds like we, you know, like you said earlier, Matt, like my doctrine of God, my view of God and my view of the Bible tend to be concomitant. Right. And so if God comes to us on the cross, then, of course, he, he could come to us then in an imperfect book. Um, and I think also what I'm hearing in that, Greg, that's important, because I, I can hear a little bit of the insecurity, maybe some of the pushback that some people might have to say, okay, well, if it's an imperfect book, how do we know God can communicate to us? Like, what do we, how do we know how to read these passages, you know, if it's not just this perfect, you know, list of facts about God? Um, but I, I think for you, and I've you know read enough of your stuff to know that this is true. But like I think for you, that the cross is the sort of interpretive key, the hermeneutic Absolutely, key yeah. through which you look at the Old Testament, you know, all the passages. Because I think that's the other pushback, and maybe you've heard this before as well. Maybe you could speak to this. The other pushback is like, oh, so you know, the New Testament reveals you know Jesus on the cross, and so we just throw out the Old Testament, or we just sort of chalk it up to, well, it's imperfect. So I don't know, who knows what's going on there? So we don't really need it anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Kind of a Marcionite uh, kind of uh, thing that gets thrown around. But um, maybe you can talk about like how how then do we read passages? Maybe that we don't think. Maybe we're convinced. You know the conquest narrative never happened or maybe we're you know maybe we're convinced that uh israel was misguided in this moment uh, you know mm-hmm. or whatever like how do we learn how to read those passages then through the light of the cross i don't know if you can give a concrete example or no, no, that's a, a a very good question um well so here's the thing is is um the to me it's a non-negotiable that we have to accept the whole the whole canon as divinely inspired yeah I can make a case for that based on, you know, Jesus endorsed the Old Testament. I got reasons for thinking that he is the son of God, so I'm not going to disagree with him on that. And mm-hmm. this is the pattern that then there'd be a New Testament uh, uh, 
to testify about what God has done. And I could go on about that, but let's just move right. off on. Yeah. So, so given that, I have to deal with this. Uh, I, I, I don't have a choice. Um, and 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 uh, um, as I'm as I'm wrestling with this, um, the thing is, is that that Jesus Himself gives us the whole telos, the whole the whole culmination of the narrative when He says it's all about Me. And so, mm-hmm. and, and Paul tells us that all the wisdom of God, all the treasure of God's wisdom, is found in Christ. Mm-hmm. So, why would we look anywhere else to find God's wisdom other than in Christ? And that's the wisdom we need when we're reading the Bible. Uh, he's going to be the key. So, so the way I think about it is, is is like this. On the cross, I see two things happening. On the one hand, I see God bearing the sin of the world, the brokenness of the world, all that. And it really, and secondly, I, I see the beauty of God revealed by him coming down to do that. Um, mm-hmm. So when I read the Bible, I need to have uh, like bifocal lens. This is what we have on the cross. We have bifocals. I never said it like this before, but I think it's really good now that I'm saying it. Uh, faith, faith. <laughs> I, faith gives us bifocals, so we see the surface, which is ugly. Reflect that—that yeah. that tells us about who we are, right? But mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. fact that God would step into it tells us about who God is. So when I read the Bible, yeah. I got bifocals. Uh, there's a surface and there's a, a depth. The surface is what anyone can see, whether you're a believer or not. Uh, what does the original words mean? You know, a, a professor of, of uh, the guy who taught me Hebrew was an atheist. But man, he knew his Bible. Okay, so he, he he can know the meaning, the surface meaning, as much as anyone else. What he doesn't have is the faith to see what's going on behind the scenes that makes this you know a beautiful revelation. And so when I come upon passages that strike me as very unChristlike, uh, uh, show no mercy, slaughter them all, uh, spare the trees but kill the babies, uh, Deuteronomy twenty-two. Um, when I come upon things like that, since I know what I, I will trust that God is like He is in Jesus Christ, and I can't. And they're in search of the imagination. Imagine Jesus telling me to slaughter babies. So the surface text that tells me that portrays God as commanding the slaughtering of of women and children, um, th- that that reflects. That doesn't tell me who God is. It tells me a lot about God's people. Uh, this is what God's people believe. This is where they were at. And since God operates by means of the power of the cross, not the power of Zeus. He operates through influence, not through coercion. He doesn't lobotomize people to give them true thoughts before he works with them. He, he, he's not going to coerce them into believing true things. He has to embrace them, believing false things. And, and, and he does that to stay committed to them. And this is what it is to be committed to a fallen people. And so he, he, he absorbs that just as he does on the cross. He absorbs mm-hmm. that. And so he takes on an appearance that reflects that on the cross. He shows us the, the ugliness of the sin that he's bearing. Well, we see that throughout the Bible. He's always been the God of the cross. He's always been bearing sin. He's always been willing to stoop down as low as necessary to remain in solidarity with his beloved and to appear ugly doing that. And the if we're if the cross is our guide, the ugly appearance is ugly in the surface, but beautiful in its depth. Because it's an eternal testimony to the depths to which God was willing to go to stay in relationship with his people. He's mm. always been bearing their sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so mm-hmm. you, you read the Bible through with, 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 with bifocals. So in the conquest narrative, for example, let's see. Here's the other thing: is that out of allegiance to Jesus, I endorse all these writings as being divinely inspired. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't say anything about how they might be evaluated historically, critically, uh, to what degree yeah. do they correspond with history, and all those things. That that's a that, that historical critical question is a is a good one. There's a place for it. But when we're reading the Bible as God's word to really mm-hmm. as a window to Jesus, um, 
I, I encourage people to bracket out those questions because Jesus wasn't trying to answer those questions. Uh, I think yeah. I think that's really important, Greg, because when when people hear people, I think people don't realize that that's a lens they're reading the Bible through. Yes, yeah. they they just see historical critical as the reality how you read things how you read things but exactly. but you just named that as that that is a uh you know not to be pejorative or caricature but that's an enlightenment lens exactly that was yeah. put on the text that per, and very likely jesus had much different frames when he read scripture absolutely. than enlightenment people do yeah. absolutely he was not at all in the question of to what degree does this correspond to actual history uh yeah we we always we're trained now. Our lens is that there's always a gap between the writing and what actually happened. Um, mm-hmm. That that is a post enlightenment mindset, and we're gonna yeah. and and this is what Hans Frey uh, called the eclipse of the biblical narrative is when we let our mm-hmm. modern questions eclipse the message that's in you know, yeah. that's intended yeah. to give. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's important to say too. It doesn't like you know, it's not necessarily a good or bad lens, right? So historical critical, you know, uh, thinking is not necessarily good or bad, but you have to realize that it is a lens and it's a late lens. You know what I mean? Like it came about in the last few hundred years and people have been, people have been Christians for a long time before that, you know what I mean? And it it wasn't like, you know, they were, they were encountering Christ, like the church thrived, all that kind of stuff. So I, I think it's, I think that's important too, to just say like, it's not a bad lens necessarily, and, but it's, it's just one of many. No, it's just one of many. It's a helpful lens uh, if, if, yeah. if you understand it's towards its own purposes. I yeah. rely on the historical critical method heavily when I am yeah. uh, defending the historicity of the Gospels, because this is the, the epistemic foundation of my faith. Um, and, and so I assess the Gospel narratives as I would assess any other ancient documents and to what degree do they correspond with history. And I think they come out very well. Uh, yes. if, if you're open to the possibility of their story being true, it gives you all the reasons in the world to think it is true. Uh, so yeah. I, I, I like the historical critical method. It doesn't bother yeah. me at all if most historical critical thinkers come to the conclusion that the conquest narrative didn't happen as it as is portrayed in the Bible. It what's inspired is the story that I, I will mind yeah. that story for what God wants to teach me about it, uh, yeah. regardless of how I evaluate it historical critically. Yeah. Now there's limits to that. Like there has to be. I don't want to divorce history from the biblical narrative because it is rooted in history. Um, yeah. And, and uh, uh, you know, if, if there's no truth to the Exodus or the, you know, to, to the major events that are the turning points in narrative, that could cause an apologetic problem. Uh, right. Possibly. But uh, um, uh, as I see it, there's, there's a, there's enough, there's enough uh, continuity between the writings and history to, I don't need to be meticulously accurate or any of that. That's, that's mm-hmm. utterly irrelevant. I need the Gospels mm-hmm. to be reliable. I need the foundational events to be you know, more or less reliable. But uh, I think I've got yeah. good reasons for believing what I believe, and I don't need the stories, every particular story to back it yeah. up. Yeah, I, I think that's an important thing to point out, too, that you're treating the New Testament a little bit differently than the Old Testament in the sense that I think the foundation of our faith, it, it can't be like on the, the perfect uh, these words being the perfect sort of uh, representation of reality that we think they are. But the foundation of your like. For you to be a Christian, you're saying, and I, I would agree with you. For me to be a Christian, I do actually. I can't just believe that this story that somebody made up about Jesus is really beautiful. Right. 
Like my faith is actually rooted in, I think there was a man named Jesus who was crucified, who was, you know, fully God, fully man, like all of the stuff the creeds teach that he really did rise from the dead. Right, right. That's actually, that needs to be historical for me to have my faith anyway. And I know there's some people that would claim Christianity who don't think it needs to be historical, but there is a, there's a limit to these things, right? Like you're, you're rooting your faith in the reliability of the gospels. Well, if I thought it was unreliable, I mean, C.S. Lewis held that, you know, the, the story of God becoming incarnate, dying for us on the cross is the greatest myth ever told. Um, it just, he thinks in this case, we're giving reasons to think it actually happened. And that's why he right. thought that you know, Jesus was myth incarnate and was the reality to which all good mythology points. And I think that's a mm-hmm. strong point. I think that, that, that that's very mm-hmm. good. Um, so it, it would, it could still have a mythic. I could still think it still taps into this intuition that if there's a purpose to life, it's got to be about love. And this is the greatest love story ever told. So it's at least got that going for it. Uh, yeah. But when you start to ask the question, how do they come to believe this story? These first century Orthodox Jews believe yeah. that a contemporary was God. Well, uh, either you've got three choices. Either they fabricated intentionally, which is really no one really believes that because they give a life for it. Uh, or it was legend, or they were telling the truth. And legend is just a hard thing to defend. Uh, yeah. Paul Eddy and I wrote a book called The Jesus Legend, where we take on every mm-hmm. variation of the, his, the the idea that the Gospels are substantially legendary. And I, 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 I think we do a good job of showing that they just don't stand, stand up under scrutiny. Yeah. yeah. The second part of this conversation, Greg, I want to turn to more practical uh, a practical kind of considerations about how then do we read scripture? How do we, uh, how do we appropriate it? I was, we had a meeting with our leaders this past Friday and somebody in our church who used to be a pastor was telling us for the first time in about six years, I feel like I can preach again. And he, and we, when we pressed him on why he's like, well, it took me almost 18 months, but I finally got through crucifixion of the warrior God. <laughs> and he and he said, I feel like I can finally hold all this stuff together. Wow. Oh, and, oh good. And, and be able to read scripture and proclaim it as good news in its entirety. And I bring that story up because I think when we talk to pastors and leaders, so many of them have evidence that demands a verdict sitting on their shelf. And it worked for a long time, and now it doesn't. And they're in this scary space where they have these questions, these intuitions, these contradictions, perhaps, but they dare not speak it because they'll lose uh, ordination. Yeah. And they and they get so frustrated every week in the pulpit because they're maybe saying things they don't fully believe. So maybe from a practical standpoint, Greg, like how do you how does this change the way you read scripture? How does it change the way? For instance, you read Psalms praying that God would destroy your enemies. How does this change the way you read Scripture? Yeah. Well, once I, I – to me, everything hangs on fully trusting that the revelation of the cross, of God on the cross, uh, is the definitive revelation of God. That's the non-negotiable. I lock that in. That's uh, – if I see Jesus, if you see me, you see the Father. Well, are we going to trust him or not? It, it comes down mm-hmm. to that. Um and, and if I'm going to trust that Jesus is the full revelation of God, then that means that uh, I can't be accepting the surface meaning of these other depictions of God that contradict what I learned about God in Christ. And and so when I come upon the Psalms, and he's, I mean, some of the Psalms, you know, some of them are beautiful <laughs> and magnificent, but some of them are, you know, I, may, they, may my enemies, you know, boil in the sun like a slug, you know, that... 
Uh, one psalmist says, may they go down into Sheol alive. He's basically saying, I want them buried alive. May their children never see their father again. It's just hateful stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so in reading that, I, this says a lot about humanity. Uh, we are, you know, we're prone toward, to, to have these kind of depictions of God and these kind of emotions and this rage. And, and so when I read those Psalms, to the degree that it contradicts what I learned about God and Jesus Christ, um, I, I'll see it as, as I'll marvel at God's willingness to use people in their rawness, in their honesty, in their confusion, in their anger, uh, and weave that into this narrative that's leading up to Jesus. Um, and I can see my own stuff in the psalmist. You know, it, it's easy to sit back and be self-righteous and like, oh, how terrible that they would. Well, you know what? If I'm honest, I, I, I've got those things going on in my heart, too. Um, and C.S. Lewis, in one of his essays on the Psalms, he says that he, he's so thankful that God left the humanity of the authors in place. Because he says, mm. by, by uh, it, that way, we, we can see the multi-layered process that God went through in educating human beings and bringing us to the place where he wanted us to be and how patient God has been with us and working with us. He, 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 he never associated that with the cross. He never made that connection, but he had all the right intuitions. Uh, that here, here's, the Bible is this narrative of God coming down and dealing with human beings and all of our stubbornness and stupidity and all that stuff. But he patiently works with us, works with us, works with us, all the while bearing our sin, all the while, you know, just like Jesus, he ruined his reputation by hanging out with the prostitutes. Well, God ruins his reputation by hanging out with losers like us. Because uh, we, 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 we give sometimes terrible depictions of him. <laughs> You've got a bad name and we're still doing that. Uh, but the whole thing is, a t- t- it, it, it all is a testament to the God who's finally definitively real on the cross. If the cross reveals what God's truly like, it reveals what God's always been like. God didn't just start becoming cruciform with the, so we should read the Bible in, in a cruciform way, looking for, and, and even it, it helps me like this. When I know about the suffering of God on the cross, I can look back and see that in bearing sin, he's been suffering all along. Uh, what must it have been like for him to have to allow his people who think that he's one of the typical ancient Eastern deities who he, I think God promised them the land. That's a key point of the story land. But I think Mo, yeah. in, in saying, I, I, I'm giving you this land as your inheritance. I think what, what Moses and the Israelites heard is, Oh, uh, he's going to help us go in and exterminate them because that's what mm. all the ancient Eastern deities did. Yeah. And so for God, Just an assumption. Yeah. if God's not going to lobotomize them, he has to work with them as they are. And so to have them in his name, go out and slaughtering children. Uh, and he loves those children as much as he loves you or me or anybody else. Um, that had to grieve his heart. Uh, and yet, I mean, that's the pain of God in working with humanity that culminates on the cross. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, just a quick comment on the Psalms too. I've found it so helpful to think about them as authorized ways to pray. Like you can bring all the ugliness of your heart to God in prayer. Yeah. Like God's not scared mm-hmm. off by that. Mm-hmm. He's not mm-hmm. necessarily a pagan God who's going to be like, well, you prayed for it. I guess I got to do it for you now. Yeah, yeah right, right. But right. <laughs> he's a safe, he's a safe place to bring all of that. No, no, um, you can vent all that ugliness. You can, yeah. he loves honesty. Uh, like like yeah, the one yeah. Psalmist who says, you know, uh, he's, he's gloating over Babylon. He says, you know, blessed are the people who are going to smash your baby's heads against the rocks. Uh, well, you know, uh, not the most Christ-like prayer in the world. Um, no. That was a custom at the time. As they, they would celebrate victory by taking the infants of the opponents. and uh, it, It's brutal. But see, it was an honest prayer. And God meets us where yeah. we're at. 
God's always been leading yeah. me. It's exactly where we're at. And I think the Bible is a testament to how, you know, just how mm. low God's willing to go to do that. Uh, nowhere more <laughs> yeah. so than on the cross. Yeah, you have a chapter in here on the accommodation, how God accommodates his communication and revelation to us. And I would just, I'd commend, if you don't have 18 months, maybe get cross vision, <laughs> which should take you maybe three months to get through. And oh, uh, you kind of lays out uh, Greg's <laughs> framework there. But Greg, I, I'm, I'm noticing how um, at one point in my life, what you're saying would have threatened the way I made sense of Christianity. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would have been super scared of it. And I think what I, um, mm. and I think what I would have just been scared of is, you know, can I say slippery slope around here? Like, you know, you throw out sort of these epistemical, uh, ep- ep- epistemical like guardrails and then it's a free for all, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You just get rid yeah. of what you don't like. You make a God in your own image. But what I hear you saying, and I want to punctuate it, and maybe we can close with you giving us uh, a little more insight in this is that we aren't building a God based on our own preference. We are Mm -hmm. starting with what Hebrews 1 says is the clearest picture of God. Yes. Boom. And filtering everything through that. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's... And and you're right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, this is the—I just want to point out, this is the difference if uh, the caricatured sort of progressive liberal handling of Scripture that a lot of conservatives are scared about, that they're just building a God in their own image— uh, what you're saying is, let's get to know the God in Christ's image, and mm-hmm. take that God with us as we read God's revelation of a- Himself. Absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, and he, Hebrews one says it so so beautifully. In the past, you know, God spoke in diverse ways. Uh, they got glimpses of the truth. Truth, the Phillips translation has it. But in these last days, God spoke into us through His Son. So in the past, it was mediated, but now God comes in person. And then he says, uh, whereas they had approximations in the past, in, in the Son, we have the one who is in the, the exact likeness. He's the radiance of God's glory. Uh, in the mm-hmm. past, they had little glimmers of the glory, but now this is the very radiance of God's glory mm-hmm. um, and the exact representation of his essence, hypostasis. He's Christ-like all the way down. So this mm-hmm. is a superior revelation. The book of Hebrews is all about this. So having the superior, especially knowing that everything's supposed to point to this, we have to read everything as pointing to this. So nothing could contradict yes. it if it's all supposed to point to it. The idea yeah. that, that, I mean, a lot of Christians read the Bible like a smorgasbord. And yeah, you have the image of God in Christ, but you also have the image of God in the conquest narrative and then the Babylonian captivity. And they just take all these different portraits and smush them together and come up with a yeah. really a pretty contradictory yeah. view of God. Uh, we're supposed to see everything as pointing towards and consistent with Yes. Uh, the revelation of God on the cross. I think it's important to point out we're, we're doing like you're coming to the, the Bible with some sort of assumptions, either about what the Bible is or who Jesus is, right? You're, you're coming to the Bible with these assumptions. One of your assumptions might be that all of these things are equally sort of uh, valid and true. All of the sentences of the Bible and I just smush them together. Right. That's what I have to do because the assumption I came with is the Bible is true or the Bible is inerrant. Right. But if you if you take actually what the Bible says <laughs> is true of Jesus as your lens for reading the Bible, you end up with a, a much better way to read the Bible. And so I almost hear you just saying, like, just try it. Just try reading the Bible through the lens of, of Christ and see if that helps you be a better Christian. And, you know, Jesus I mean, didn't read the Bible as, <laughs> as, though, as though everything was equally important. Um, right. He, he right. says the Pharisees, oh, you tithe, mint, and cumin, but you, you neglect the weightier matters of the law. Uh, he says that, right. that, you know, no one is, uh, there's been no, no greater prophet uh, 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 so far up, uh, up till John. 
Um, but, uh, John, but that he has a greater authority than John does, which tells you that he has a greater mm-hmm. authority than every prophet leading up to him. And there's so many yeah. things in the New Testament that are like that. That uh, yeah. he says, you've heard it said unto you, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Okay, that's three times in the Old Testament. Twice it's required. You must take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Don't go lenient. Jesus says, well, now that was then. I'm telling you, uh, turn the other mm-hmm. cheek and love your enemies and and so on and so on. Yes. So he didn't have any trouble. There's He, he regarded all as God's word, but not all of equal authority and all of, of equal application. Yep. Right. Don't get me started on his omitting the day of vengeance from Isaiah 61. I mean, I that, that gets you kicked out of some churches today. Uh, Greg, so how do you— It almost got him how killed do you... <laughs> that people wanted to kill him, you know? You, yeah. you left out the best Yeah, just part. don't take our, yeah, the don't take our vengeance, man. Don't. Yeah, our, those Romans yeah. are going to get it, and and he, yeah. he cuts off uh, at, at that last clause, and that wasn't what he was about. Man, were they ticked. Yeah, we still don't like you taking our violence from us. Anybody, Jesus, Greg Boyd, Matt Tebby, let me have my violence. Uh, how did you get so clear? And I'm, I'm, I'm maybe uh, intentionally asking about some books that maybe um, I think have been most important to me, seeing as believing, um, and your books on meditative prayer. Mm-hmm. How has that enhanced? How has that enhanced your way of seeing Christ for who He is, the crucified mm-hmm. God? How, how is your prayer life, your meditative life? Uh, anch- uh, crystallize that anchor for you. Well, it, it, it comes out um, with the when I'm totally confident that that the character of God revealed in the cross is the character of God all the way down. Well, then, whenever I am imagining God or anything about God, that is the canvas against which everything is painted. Um, I, I'm, I'm whatever I in, in imaginative prayer. Whether I'm seeing, you know, talking to Jesus or visiting heaven or whatever, but it's all against the background of the cruciform God. That this is God's love. Uh, it, it's, um, and the more I grow in confidence of that, the more in love I fall. Uh, it, it's the more beautiful your view of God, the more beauty it evokes in you. And that's why I, I always tell. I think the most important fact in anyone's existence is their their mental image of God. What really yes. comes to mind when you say God, and that's not to say, you know. Tell me your theology, because a lot of times we espouse things theologically that, that that don't correspond to what we're actually seeing in our head. What really comes to mind, and 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 it, it, a major part of Christian discipleship is, I think, fine tuning it so that our our image, what comes to mind, is always has the character that's revealed uh, of God on, on the cross of Jesus Christ. You process life totally differently when when you're confident of that. Then, if you have some other the image of your dad or your mother or grandpa or the guy who raped you or whatever, um, no, yeah. it, it's all the treasure of God's wisdom is found in Christ, all of it. Yeah, this is why I think your 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 books on imaginative prayer and the forming of the imagination I think are crucial and vital. We're we're so in love with the intellect and the uh, the analytical side of our mind, the discursive side mm-hmm. of our mind. And and what we're reading through and with, we don't even realize it, is this, ima- this this imaginary we have of who God is and the emotive, effective, uh, visceral part of that God, I think, is formed and shaped through prayer. Absolutely. And, a- a- absolutely. Yeah. We, we have been way too trustful, I think, of the, the left side of the brain and distrustful of the right side, in the West anyways. Um, and uh, mm. yeah, so we, we, we know a lot more about God. We, we, it's easier for us to know about God than it is for actually to know God. Uh, to get to that mm. level, you've got to really pay attention to what actual, all of our emotions, and this is a, this, yeah. this is a neurological fact now. We, 
all of our emotions yeah. are associated with the pictures that we are have in our head. We are, we have video soundtracks going. We replay mm-hmm. reality in our head, and that's there's an emotional component to all those pictures. So I tell people that your your love for God will never outrun the beauty of your mental picture of God. Um, yeah. You can't picture God too beautiful. Uh, mm. And the beauty of your life, since we always take on the image of the God that we worship, the beauty of your life mm. will never outrun the beauty of your mental picture of God. Mm. And Paul says that very thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you read mm. it, it goes on into up to the first six verses of chapter 4. But he says, he compares, uh, he's drawing an analogy of, of in the Old Testament when Moses would come out for meeting with the glory of God, he'd have a veil over his face to hide the glory. And then Paul yeah. says, to this day, when non-believers read the law, th- there's a veil over their, their, their minds. And so he's applying it to our minds. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and he talks about the blindness of their minds. They could not see something. But when someone turns to the Lord, Paul says, I think it's like verse 15, uh, uh, that veil is removed. And then he says, starting with yeah. verse 17, so, we are, so where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And he's talking about a freedom to see something. And then mm-hmm. he says, so we all with unveiled faces – are transformed, we behold the glory of God uh, in the face of mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, and we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So as we mentally, mm-hmm. now that we're freed, we can envision who God really is, and that changes us into that image. So it's what you see that mm-hmm. determines what you become. That's why I say your mental picture of God is the most important thing in your life. Yeah. Yes. More meditation on the crucified God, less analysis of how First Chronicles and First Samuel don't line up. That's what I hear you say. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that you first and second chronicles didn't line up, people couldn't write dissertations on it. So that plays a role. <laughs> There's some good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but right. let the people write their dissertations. But in terms of reading the Bible, Greg, God's what do word, you? I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. What are you working on right now? What what's stirring your pot? Oh, okay, I, I, I'm working on an article for a book uh, on uh, theology of disease. And uh, I, I'm talking about mm. how I, I, th- there's, there's a, I, I make the case that, that uh, the fall is not, first and foremost, a human fall, but a cosmic fall. The human fall is a microcosm of a cosmic fall. And the cosmic fall uh, is, is with uh, angelic beings that were entrusted with aspects of creation, but they rebelled and now use that authority at cross purposes with God. And so instead of enhancing the creation, they corrupt the creation. And uh, um, yeah, so the, and, and that I argue the whole the whole process of evolution is is a process of uh, I, I, Lewis had it right when he said it, it. Every moment, every square inch of the cosmos is claimed by Satan and counterclaimed by God. Uh, hmm. I, I apply that to hmm. evolution, and, and I think all of the evolutionary process, you see the creativity of God coming forth. And there's all sorts of more recent biological theories that are. Are, are placing less emphasis on nature being red in tooth and claw and natural selection as yeah. the only mechanism. And they're talking, they're, they're noticing mm. how in, uh, we could only arrive at where we're at in this evolutionary process if, 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 because of, of positive things like symbiosis, uh, cooperation, emergent property theory. Where Emergence, the, yeah. The, the, yeah. There's, mm-hmm. there's a creative advance happening. And so in that light, I, I can see, you know, God creates – the powers discreate or corrupt, but God t- t- brings good out of evil to create something new. Uh, the powers corrupt, but God is always, it's a chess match that God's always one step ahead of them because God's infinitely wise and anticipates every possible move they could ever make. And so in the end, God arrives at his Imago Dei creatures uh, by overcoming conflict and by his love and by his wisdom. And he outsmarts the enemy. 
And, and, and so we don't have to blame all the horrendous things that go on in nature. And there are some horrendous things that go on in nature but that don't reflect mm-hmm. the benevolent character of God. Uh, what do you do with those things? Mm. Uh, well, I, yeah. I, I think it's a result of God battling to uh, achieve his purpose. Yeah. God is always present in a work, but he's not the only being present in a work. He's always present. And, and you can tell his presence because there'll be things that are moving <laughs> in the direction of the cross, the character of God, the love. Um, mm. And... and and you tell the enemy stuff, it was like Jesus talked about the wheat and the tares, right? And mm-hmm. when he learns about the tares, the farmer says, oh, this an enemy has done. Uh, but you have to leave mm. them both together. There's a, they, they grow together, and they'll be separated in the end. We're in a creation that's a wheat and tares kind of creation. Uh, it'll be separated mm-hmm. in the end, but in the meantime, it's going to be. But in this kind of, in this wheat and tares world where we got wheat, good stuff, God stuff, wonderful stuff, but we also have tares, enemy stuff, and stuff that we ourselves do. In this world, it's so important to know. Uh, uh, what is of God and what is of the enemy? This an enemy is done. Yes. Well, when you see horrendous things, uh, I think we should know that, that it comes from some will other than God. This an enemy is done. Yes. That's There's somebody I, who needed to hear that today. That's, yeah. that's what I'm working yeah. on right now. Great. Thanks so much, Greg. Awesome, uh, people can find you at Renew. Renew.org. And you're on the Twitter. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. Oh, thanks, you guys. It's always good talking with you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.